Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care program, update on clinical trials, how they work. I know this is an area of great interest for many of you on this call because, indeed, um, we would like to see um, people participating in clinical trials if they feel it's appropriate, and we'd like you to learn as much about clinical trials as possible so you can make more informed decisions. Today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations, and it's because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have over 454 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, frontier, and suburban and um, urban areas, as well as international um, parts of the world from Canada and the United Kingdom, so a bit of a global call as well. Today's program is supported by Bristol Myers Squibb, the Celgene Corporation, and Diana Napoli Fund, and really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Al Benson III. Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. Dr. Benson is going to address an overview of clinical trials, why they are important, what happens in a clinical trial, the meaning of informed consent, and benefits and risks of participation. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and thanks for this opportunity to uh, address the topic uh, for me as a medical oncologist is, is very critical to what I do uh, every day, and particularly for the care of patients. Uh, one thing I like to emphasize about clinical trials, um, clinical trials are conducted throughout all of medicine and all disciplines of medicine. But what makes oncology or cancer medicine a little bit unique is that clinical trials are directly integrated into the routine care of patients as a potential option of care for an individual. And therefore, uh, clinical trials in oncology are conducted, uh, for example, throughout the United States in many different settings, including uh, community hospitals, rural hospitals, academic medical centers, the Veterans Administration, county hospitals, really the whole gamut of healthcare institutions across the country. So clinical trials are, in fact, research studies, uh, but there are many, many different types of research studies, and they aren't all highly experimental as some people uh, view them. But it is through clinical trials that we find new ways to improve treatments and the quality of life for people with a given uh, disease. Um, uh, the researchers, such as myself, who design uh, different types of clinical trials are looking for new or better ways to treat cancer, to find and diagnose cancer, to prevent cancer, or to manage symptoms of cancer and side effects from treatment. So any of these facets uh, can be a component uh, of a clinical trial. Uh, clinical trials are the final step in a long process that uh, can eventually lead to routine use of a cancer treatment. Often, especially with drug treatments, this starts in the laboratory where uh, uh, investigators, uh, laboratory scientists are looking at the biology of tumor cells 
and different pathways that, for example, may be affected by a, a certain uh, drug or agent. And from these laboratory experiments, which uh, eventually also include animals, typically mice, we learn a great deal about how a given treatment uh, will affect um, uh, cancer cells, and we also learn something about the safety of the agents. And then once all of that background is available and we have a better understanding, these drugs uh, can then move forward uh, to be tested in a human population. Each clinical trial has uh, at least a principal investigator. It's often a, a medical doctor, but uh, it also could be uh, investigators who have PhDs um, and have expertise in other uh, disciplines. But this person is overall responsible for the overall conduct uh, of the clinical trial. And that includes creating a protocol document. So this is actually, if you will, a recipe or a blueprint for how the trial must be conducted at every medical facility uh, where the trial is uh, available. And so everyone is using exactly the same document. Uh, for a given trial, and it's very, very specific. It, it explains the reason for doing the trial. It, it shows which people can actually join the trial, and that's referred to as eligibility criteria. It'll tell how many people are needed for the trial to actually prove that whatever is being tested is in uh, in fact uh, uh, you know very useful and helpful to people. Uh, if it's a trial where drugs or other treatments are involved, it will be very very specific as to how the drug should be given, what is the dose, how often, and importantly, if there are side effects, how do you adjust the dosing? so that uh, we can avoid side effects as much as possible. The document will also discuss what medical tests must be done and how often to be best able to evaluate how well the treatment is working and also providing very important safety information. Um, it also is very specific as to what data must be uh, collected. So uh, typically these will look at uh, response rates and then uh, collect uh, uh, important data if there are a collection of side effects and how severe these side effects are. So that once the trial is completed, we have extensive information to analyze if uh, benefit is shown, if the endpoint of the clinical trial uh, was actually uh, met. Now, as I uh, mentioned, there are different types of clinical trials. Um, there can be trials uh, including treatment, and those are the ones people are most familiar with, and these can look at for example, treatments that are brand new, they may never have been given to a person before, or they may be trials of very standard drugs, but we're trying to figure out if uh, one particular standard is better than another, and often uh, trials are comparing standard therapy with newer therapies to see if the new therapy is uh, more effective and safe. So these type of treatment uh, trials can involve drugs, they can involve vaccines, they can involve surgery or radiation, they can um, uh, look at agents uh, which are now very dominant in oncology, looking at ways to boost the uh, immune system. Uh, also, nowadays, uh, many, many trials are incorporating 
biological tissues, either from blood or from tumor in particular, to look at genetic changes within the tumor. Uh, we are uh, being able to uh, link uh, more and more treatments to specific genetic changes within a tumor, and, and this is what's often referred to as personalized medicine. And so many trials must have tissue to see if a patient has a particular genetic change that may uh, predict that the treatment has a better chance to be uh, more effective. Uh, so these type of trials, as I mentioned, you know, we look at safety uh, and we, we're looking to see which people will uh, obtain the most uh, benefit. There are also prevention trials, and, and these trials often involve healthy people. And uh, uh, these are individuals, however, who may be at increased risk for developing a specific disease such as a cancer. And these type of studies can look for a variety of ways uh, to try to prevent a cancer. They may involve a specific drug or it may involve other interventions such as diet changes, vitamins, minerals, exercise, for example, uh, may all be part of a, a prevention trial. There are also screening trials, and, and these are looking for better ways to diagnose a disease uh, uh, at the early phase of the disease when perhaps it can be much more easily treated. And so the goal is to find a disease earlier before people have symptoms with the hope that we will save more lives. There are also trials that are looking at quality of life, supportive care, and palliative care trials, and these are really um, trying to make sure that symptoms are adequately controlled, um, uh, but often they, these type of principles, such as quality of life, are integrated in treatment trials because we want to make sure that people can be as functional and comfortable as possible while they're uh, undergoing uh, treatment. I mentioned that there are phases of clinical trials, uh, and there are generally uh, three critical phases of investigation. Um, uh, a phase one trial is uh, a trial that might involve a highly experimental drug, or it may involve commercially available drugs, but they're being given in new combinations so that understanding the safety of these new combinations is of critical importance. So the main purpose is to define a safe dose, whether it's an individual drug or a combination of drugs, uh, to decide how the treatment might best be given. For example, should it best be given IV or can it be taken as a pill? And then critically, uh, how the new treatment might affect the human body. Uh, so we do look to see if, if there's uh, any uh, effect on the tumor, although the main purpose is really safety and also looking at other aspects such as blood levels of the drug uh, to make sure people are getting concentrations of drug that are most likely to be beneficial. A phase two study is really to determine if the treatment has an effect uh, on the cancer. And that typically involves looking to see, will the tumor actually shrink? Or uh, will people not develop uh, new spots of cancer? Or will it stabilize the cancer for a much longer period of time? And then finally, the phase three treatment, uh, a phase three type clinical trial is, is really designed uh, to see um, how a new treatment uh, compares to a standard treatment. 
And these trials, uh, unlike phase one and phase two trials, which often have uh, less than 100 people participating in the trial, these phase three trials can involve hundreds and sometimes even thousands of study uh, of patients. So for example, there's a very large uh, breast imaging study uh, in the United States now that has as its goal to enter 160,000 people. That's uh, you know quite an impressively large uh, trial. Um, so why are these clinical trials important? Well, uh, our goal is for people to live longer lives with successful treatments. And the only way we can determine if a treatment works is to conduct clinical trials. Every single FDA-approved treatment uh, for cancer has been approved on the basis of clinical trials. So the fact that thousands and thousands and thousands of people over time have participated in these trials, it, it has really advanced uh, cancer care treatment uh, development and has led to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new drugs being brought forward uh, to help people. And, uh, and it's critical that these are conducted. Uh, uh, it is a problem when people look at, for example, complementary treatments such as vitamins and so forth that have not undergone this rigorous type of testing. So it becomes difficult for us to tell a person how well do these treatments work. When we do these very, very... Uh, well-designed clinical trials, we have a much better idea how a treatment will work, and more importantly, uh, working to better select people who are most likely to benefit from a treatment. Now, when you participate in a clinical trial, it is required that an individual sign an informed consent. And this is a process where you as an individual learn the details about a trial before deciding whether to take part. And this document, which must be written in lay language uh, so that people readily understand the trial's purpose and the possible risks and benefits. Um, and uh, uh, this is an essential component of ensuring uh, patient safety and research because it's critical that people know what potential risks there are, for example, so that if a side effect happens, they know they must report it immediately and that it, it's something that we as researchers would be very concerned about. Uh, the informed consent also will explain procedures that are required during, during the trial, such as how many CAT scans or how many blood tests you might know, need to have. It will also discuss your rights, including your right to make a, a decision about participating in, in the trial, and very importantly, acknowledging that if you decided this trial was not appropriate for you at any point in time, that you may leave the study at any time. And so... Um, uh, this provides you the right uh, also to learn about uh, all your treatment options. So part of an informed consent process is that you not only know uh, what the clinical trial is all about and why it's being offered to you, but also what are the alternative options. In some cases, a clinical trial may be the very best option because you have had all the standard therapies. In other cases, there may be choices, and one choice may be a clinical trial, and in the discussion of the trial, uh, you need to know um, what other options outside of the trial uh, might be available to you. The consent form uh, should also 
tell you who the principal investigators are, uh, who is the sponsor of the trial. And uh, the sponsor of a trial can vary. It can be uh, a pharmaceutical company. It could be the government, like the National Institutes of Health or the Veterans Administration. It could be a university like mine at Northwestern, or it could be a community hospital or a group of oncologists who are uh, conducting uh, research. Um, and it's important for you uh, to know that information. Uh, and finally, uh, as I conclude, uh, in, in deciding to take part in a clinical trial, it's very essential that you understand what might be the possible benefits and what may be the possible risks. Uh, so, for example, um, the possible benefit is you may be offered a treatment that is not commercially available, and it may be a very promising treatment, and the only way you have access to the treatment is through the clinical trial with the hope it will help you. Um, uh, these trials, uh, as I mentioned, have very detailed protocol uh, guidelines so that the, the, the doctors and nurses, for example, who are providing the treatment know exactly how the treatment must be given uh, and exactly what to look for uh, and how closely to monitor the individual person. Um, uh, and, uh, of course, uh, this helps us as scientists learn much more about cancer and to help people in the future and can lay the groundwork to develop even more effective treatments. Possible risks, um, the new treatment may actually not be better than or even as good as the standard treatment. Uh, we may have every indication that it should be, but the reason we're conducting the clinical trial is we don't really know. And this is the only way we're going to find out how effective the treatment might be. And, of course, this has been a very successful process because it has led to many, many new drugs available to uh, patients. There may be side effects that were unknown. So there is a, a risk that uh, you would develop a, a side effect that might be worse than the standard treatment. Um, and... Uh, uh, that's something that does need to be uh, discussed in detail in terms of what these uh, risks might be. Uh, you might actually have to make more doctor visits than you would with a standard treatment because of your participation, and that might mean that you have extra expenses such as travel and child care uh, uh, that um, would have to be considered by because you're in this trial. Uh, you also may need extra tests because some trials do need more blood tests and more scans than the standard of care. Um, uh, some health insurance policies uh, may be uh, reluctant to cover some standard expenses, and you must make certain that uh, your insurance would cover what we call standard of care. The clinical trial itself would need to cover anything that would be uh, considered experimental. So with that, I think I'll conclude. This is a, uh, an important and very complex topic, but I wanted to give at least some background in terms of uh, what we do uh, in terms of clinical trials in cancer medicine. Thanks very much. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Benson. That was really very comprehensive and informative, and I think people learned a lot from this, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Georgie Kusak, and Ms. Kusak is a nurse, Master's in Nursing, um, and she is Director of Education and Patient Safety, Office of the Clinical Director, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, Adjunct Nurse Leader, 
Nursing Research and Translational Science Clinical Center, National Institutes of Health. And this CUSAC is going to be addressing um, both the, um, the where and, uh, and how um, clinical trials are conducted, so where and how clinical trials are conducted, accessing resources for clinical trials, how you may participate in a clinical trial, and specific questions to ask your healthcare team about clinical trials. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kusak. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, for allowing me to participate in this discussion, and thank you, Dr. Benson, for your expertise around clinical trials. It's my pleasure to speak to you about a topic that is near and dear to my heart, which is um, clinical trials. So I'm going to start with um, the where and the how of clinical trials. So where are clinical trials conducted? And Dr. Benson, uh, excuse me, mentioned a little bit about this. Early phase clinical trials are usually done in large academic medical um, centers, and those are your phase one and phase two studies where we, uh, in phase one studies, we conduct uh, studies with about 20 to 100 patients, and in phase two studies, um, anywhere from 100 to 300 patients. In the phase one studies, again, we're looking at primarily how well does the drug get absorbed, distributed in the body, and excreted. And then in phase two studies, we're really looking at it in very specific um types of, um, you know, types of disease processes to see if we see activity within the drug. The phase three studies are done um, usually at, um, they're also maybe done at large medical centers, but they're also done at MD offices and in the community. And for those studies, we do need thousands of patients. Many times you may see several centers that are involved with one study, and so these are called multi-center trials. Um, how are studies conducted? Dr. Benson did a nice job describing that. The protocols are a step-by-step -step approach, usually to help us to decide if a particular approach is going to be beneficial. So again, they'll be outlining the type of study, the purpose of the study, any types of treatments or interventions that are done, um, whether and specific eligibility criteria. We'll go into that a little bit more in a minute when we talk about um, how you choose a study for you or how you're chosen for a study. Uh, across the board. Um, the principal investigator is primarily responsible for the oversight of the study, but they often will delegate certain responsibilities to other members of the research team. And it's important for you to know that it's a very collaborative effort amongst all the team members to make sure that um, your patient safety is of utmost importance when you are on a clinical trial. Um, how can you participate in a clinical trial? I would first discuss with your physician to seek their opinion and their experience with any clinical trials. They may or may not know of any clinical trials, so there's also a wide variety of other resources that you can access for that, but I would take the information back to them so that you can make an informed decision with them um, and discuss the different treatment options. So they may know of a, a specific trial that's being done in your area, which is why I'd go to them first. The other resources that are available, you can either go through a clinical trials list, um, a, kind of a listserv, or do go through a clinical trials matching service. A clinical trials list, um, you will give them, or they will give you the name and the description for a clinical trial. Usually they'll tell you the description of the study, they'll tell you whether you're eligible for the study based on a variety of different factors, and then they will give you a contact person with a phone number to call for that. Um, National Cancer Institute, if you go onto their website, which is cancer.gov, they will provide you with a list of studies that are available in the U.S. and in Canada. And if you type in a keyword, then um, they will be able to tell you by phone or email or online chat whether, um, whether that study is open and accruing patients. Um, for you. You can also call, if you'd rather talk to somebody in person, you can call the 1-800-4, the number 4, cancer, and somebody will speak to you directly and will go through that criteria with you. If you want to find out about a clinical trial that may not be oncology, well, you can get clinical trials for oncology and clinical trials for non-oncology studies. Uh, you can go on the National Institute of Health site, which is clinicaltrials.gov, G-O-V, and they'll give you a list of all the studies that are available for all types of diseases. 
So you can either search by disease or search by condition. You can also perform an advanced search if you want to look for a specific phase of a study that's being done. You know, you some people um, may or may not want to participate in phase one studies um, for themselves because those are the first in human, although... Um, you know, I would say, you know, look at all the studies that are out there and take those back and talk to your physician about those studies to see which studies are will be best suited for you in terms of that. And then um, they will, you can do the specific phase of study or you can do a type of intervention. Um, another great resource is CenterWatch, and that's centerwatch.com. And they provide a list of industry-sponsored studies and government-funded studies. And again, this is another site where you will put in a medical condition. You can also put in a geographic location if you want to just stay in one particular area um, to be treated. You can also do that on the um, clinicaltrials.gov website, put in geographic locations. Or you can put in a specific drug. Maybe you saw a drug on the TV that looked like it had promising results and you said, hey, I want to look at that and see if that's going to work for me. You can put a specific drug in there also and it'll bring up any studies that are available. And then private companies such as your pharmaceutical companies may also have websites or toll-free numbers with a list of studies specifically that their company is conducting around um, and conducting research on. So those are the clinical trial lists. If you want to go to one of the matching services, the um, difference between that and the matching services, you will provide information about your type of cancer, the stage, any previous treatments that you've had, and then it will automatically go through the database and find those studies for which you may be eligible. So again, very um, studies have very specific criteria that may or make you not make you eligible to participate in their study. And so things that, um, you know, if you have abnormal, particular abnormal lab tests that are related to your cancer, that may exclude you if you have, um, you know, you sometimes have to have disease that they can measure, um, you know, with actual tumor measurements. And so those may or may not exclude you from those. And so you can put it in there into that matching website and they will actually give you that information. Some of the examples of that, um, the ACT about clinical trials website that the um, American Cancer Society has, and that's so cancer.org instead of gov, cancer.org, and then you would put in ACT for about clinical trials. Um, you can also call one eight seven seven nine seven zero seven eight four eight. And so that's one website. And then another website that you can go to is called Emerging Med, and that's emergingmed.com. And their phone number is 1-877-601-8601. So those are just a couple of examples. If you go onto the NCI website, the National Cancer Institute website, or the American Cancer Society website, um, they have all this information available also so that you can um, not feel like you have to write frantically as I'm speaking right now. Some of the questions, if you are going to do a matching service, some of the questions that you may want to ask, there are some organizations that ask for a finder's fee. So you want to ask before you start giving information to them whether they have a finder's fee. Many of them are free of charge, but there are some that have finder's fees. Uh, you will ask them if you have to register for the site. Um, you may also want to ask them if you are registering for the site, is this site confidential where they protect your information that is going into the site? Uh, where do they get their list of clinical trials from so that you can be informed about making sure it's a comprehensive database? Is there a ranking list of studies that they are um, maybe pushing a little bit more than other studies, you would want to know that information or how do they delineate that ranking. And then can you contact online or by phone with that? And so those are some of the um, studies just if you want to participate. And then when we talk about accessing resources, again, you can go on to the NCI site or the ACS site or the NIH site or CenterWatch or any one of those different sites to access um, information, but some of the questions people have when we talk about resources for clinical trials are, just as Dr. Benson said, who's going to pay for the clinical trial? And so there are very specific costs 
costs that are, as we said, considered patient care costs, and then research costs. Primarily, the patient care costs would be your um, your physician visits, your hospital stay. If there's scan- standard care treatment, that would be considered a patient care cost, treatment for side effects, lab tests, and imaging studies that are routine and standard of care for your particular type of cancer that you have. Some of the research costs, which are not usually covered by health insurance or may or may not be covered by health insurance, would include things such as the study drug, if there are specific lab tests that are being done for research purposes, if there are imaging tests that are being done for research purposes. You also may have, as Dr. Benson mentioned, additional extra safety visits related to the protocol, especially if you're on a phase one and phase two study protocol, because we really want to look at those safety endpoints very closely. And so, you know, it's it's great that, you know, that you will be seen by somebody to get, um, to be able to get your care and that they're watching you very closely for that, but sometimes that does entail extra visits for that. And so, again, there um, are a wide variety of resources that um, can help you if you need to manage costs. So one way that we look at when we talk about managing costs is, first off, you want to talk to the person that is conducting the clinical trial to see what costs are covered for the study. Are there specific costs that they're, that you're going to have to incur versus the costs that they're going to pay for the study? Many times the sponsor of the study will pay for the study drug. So you just need to be very clear when you go in for the um, for the clinical trial that you have that information so that you know, you know, kind of who's accountable for paying for what for that. Um, you can also check into um, whether hospitals or your um, wherever you're getting the study conducted has payment plans or any kind of reduced rates, whether they have patient assistance um, that they can offer to you. I would always, if you're being treated, um, especially with a larger medical center, access your social worker or access your case manager because they can be a valuable resource at helping you to understand what costs are covered and not covered and um, kind of the responsibility for that. And then you always also want to seek somebody to assist you with the understanding, you know, again, even looking to the billing office or looking uh, for the patient advocate within the organization, really somebody that can help you with that. For insurance companies, um, you would want to know about copays or deductibles. You also want to know, are there specific things that they will or won't cover in the clinical trial? Again, just so you have that information for yourself. Um, I would keep all of your paperwork in one location so that you can make sure you kind of have all your costs together for that. And then um, you can ask about also with the insurance company, ask about generic drugs versus brand name drugs because the generic drugs tend to be cheaper if they are offered. And some, you will see that a lot of insurance companies um, prefer the generic drug brand. And so they will have kind of leveling of the drugs. And so if it's a drug that is not your uh, research drug that you're doing, there may be other drugs that you can use the generic brands for that. And then in terms of looking at... um, some of the things around um, some of the legal type things, such as healthcare coverage and work, um, taking time off of work, staying employed during and after medical treatment, things like applying for jobs if you have a history of cancer. The um, the Cancer Legal Resource Center has an excellent guide on that, and so it goes over very specific things about those issues with work. Also talks about healthcare coverage. How do you understand your healthcare benefits? How do you um, um, submit patient claims? If you were to have a denial for something, what would you do about that in terms of appealing it? Uh, genetic information and how that affects your insurance. So any of those types of um, um, any of those types of questions that you may have about that. Um, again, finances, being able to pay for bills if you're unable to work. How do you manage debt? If you, you know, if that's a, a, a problem for some, or understanding housing rights, any of those um, types of things. That's an excellent resource. Again, that's the Cancer Legal Resource Center, which is available for that. 
And then my last area that I'm going to cover is questions to ask your MD. And so the first thing I would say is when you go to your MD office, take a notebook or a journal to capture any questions that you may have. Try to go prepared in advance so there are lists of questions that you can ask them specifically about the trials. Um, you can also take a family member or a friend with the appoint to the appointment with you because, again, it's sometimes it's difficult remembering everything that people are saying to you and so you want to take somebody. The other thing is some people will actually ask to tape record and so you would ask permission to tape record if you um, thought of that as an option so that you can listen back to it after visit to make sure you captured everything for that. There are several resources available. Again, if you go on the ACS or the NCI website um, about questions to ask, but some of the key questions that you want to ask if you are going to participate in a clinical trial are, why is the study being done? What's likely to happen if you take part in the study or not take part in the study, just so you are aware of that? Um, will the researchers work with your doctor, and what will be... Um, the communications that are kind of going back and forth because you want to make sure that your home doctor is aware of what's going on and how do they um, do that within the uh, their relationship with them. Who do you contact if you have problems or questions? Uh, what are some of your other options? And again, whenever they discuss clinical trials with you, they should also be discussing discussing any standard of care treatments that are out there also that could be an alternative to the treatment that they're offering you so that you are fully informed of what are your options when you're going into that. How much experience um, do they have with a particular treatment? If it's a clinical trial, how many patients have been treated before you? Um, at, how are they, you know, how are they doing? What are the results? And they'll give you kind of global. They aren't going to tell you everything about every single patient, but they will give you, they should be able to give you some um, some information if they have it available. If it's early in the process, that's a little more difficult, and they may have to wait for um, certain cohorts to be done before they give you any of that information. Uh, what kinds of tests and treatments will you need to have with the study? Will it require extra time and travel? And as Dr. Benson said, um, childcare expenses, housing arrangements, what are those things that are being done with that? Um, how do you, how will you know whether the treatment's working and um you know how will they know how will they be able to tell you that information uh as i mentioned how long will the study be how long will it last and um are there reasons that you would be removed from the study or are you allowed to to stop the study yourself voluntarily and you should be able to stop a study anytime voluntarily that's within your prerogative and all of that information is as Dr. Benson said included in the informed consent process so all of that should be clearly spelled out to you for that um and um again how long do you have to make a decision and some of that depends on you'll ask that question some of that I will tell you will depend on where your disease is in terms of the course of your disease itself and um, how quickly they need to start the treatment with you. So I hope that that information has been helpful, and I'm very happy to entertain any questions you may have. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Kusak. That was really outstanding, and I have to tell everybody that all the references that Ms. Kusak and Dr. Benson mentioned, those will all be, when you get after the program, Probably tomorrow you'll get an evaluation form to fill out, but the evaluation form isn't just an evaluation. It also includes all the resources that were mentioned um, on, during the program as well, so and the phone numbers and websites so that you'll have that information. So I know many of you are trying to write that down. Some of it is already, some, some groups we do partner with already, but it's more detail that um, I think that you might want to have, again, repeated so you'll have it at your fingertips. So, um, so just to let you know that. Um, please start thinking about your questions. I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to take questions from all of you. So um, we're going to try to take as many of them as possible. So, so think about your questions. Um, so cancer care is a national organization, and we provide a host of services to people living with cancer and their loved ones. So we provide um, practical and financial assistance. We have a co-pay foundation. Um, which helps with the cost of sometimes chemotherapy medications. And our general financial assistance helps with transportation, childcare, home care, things like that. Um, and we also um, provide counseling services, really a chance to talk with one of our 
oncology social workers, they're all master's level trained oncology social workers, about something that might be of concern to you. So people often call us about oh, all different types of questions, but just to give you a thumbnail sketch of things, sometimes people call about what should I tell my boss when I'm undergoing a cancer treatment? How should I deal with my workplace? Or questions about how do I talk to my child about my having cancer or my teenager? Or um, how do I deal with it myself and might talk to my friends? Who do I share? Who do I tell? Who do I not tell? So, and also many other questions, of course, as well. And we do talk to people and also um, talk to them on the phone as well as online communication and by email. And we also do have about 138 online support groups. And those groups are for people um, all over the United States. And so for many people, it's very helpful to hear different perspectives. Um, so often they're on different types of cancers or they're for caregivers or young young adults, middle-aged adults, older adults, um, partners, spouses, um, adult children. Um, so they're for many different people, so different issues, and also many different types of cancers, so that there's often something for everyone in those many groups that we do offer. So that's something that some people find very helpful. And also the advantage of the telephone or online support group is you don't have to travel anywhere. All these services are free. We do have these workshops as well, and we do also offer publications that you can access from our website or order from us um, online as well, or call us and request them. So with that being said, um, don't hesitate to contact us. Um, you all have, and you will have in the evaluation, our 800 number and website. It's actually all over the materials you receive from us, but we will repeat it again in the evaluation. But for now, um, we'd like to take your questions. I'm going to ask Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Stephanie F. Your line is open. Yes, thank you so much, Carolyn. This is excellent, and I really, really found out a lot of good information I can tell other people. I am a registered nurse and licensed social worker, but I'm a 13-year breast cancer survivor, and I have two questions for uh, Georgie Cusack. Um, I'd like to know, are you allowed um, at, during a clinical trial to take vitamin D, calcium, like B6, alpha lipoic acid, the vitamins that you are taking, because sometimes during sometimes during radiation, vitamin C is not allowed. I wasn't allowed to take it at all. And also for chemo, how are they able to tell you which vitamins you can take, which you can't take, and what about your medications that could possibly go against and have adverse reactions and maybe some contraindications? Like what, how would they be able to do that, the researchers, for these trials? Thank you so much. So they have a question. Yeah, sorry. I was going to say, so they have very specific guidelines around the clinical trials, and so it may actually be listed in your clinical trial itself what medications you can and can't take, especially if you're getting something like a targeted therapy or something where you may potentially have an interaction with a particular type of vitamin or agent or anything. The The key to this is always tell your provider what medications you're currently taking, and then they will be able to sift through the different medications and allow you to know whether you can take that. In the earlier phase, um, you know, the phase one clinical trials, they like to minimize, you know, any extraneous factors in terms of taking a lot of extra medications and stuff, because if you do have any type of reaction, it's very hard to tell what the reaction is related to. And so they just want to be very rigorous in how they look at the um, you know, look at the trial and look at all of the additional medications and things like that that you may be taking for that. So the key is to make sure that you let them know what you're on. And I'll tell you, the, the NCCAM, the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicines, which is our um, the center for really looking at that, the reason they went into play in 1998 was because of the fact that there were so many people taking um, alternative medicines and vitamins and minerals and different things like that. So now we have controlled trials.
pounds, even just looking at the types of supplements that people are taking. But if you're on a, a true phase one or phase two or phase three clinical trial, we need to know those medications so that we can best direct you in whether you should be or shouldn't be taking them at the time of the clinical trial. Thank you. Dr. Benson, do you have something else you want to add to that? Oh, no, I, I totally agree. Um, it, it's really critical, uh, whether you're on a trial or not, uh, actually, that uh, your medical team knows exactly what you're taking. And it doesn't matter if it's a vitamin or uh, milk thistle or Tylenol. It, it is very important. And there are certain uh, drugs where there can be interactions in the trials will uh, exclude those specifically. Uh, other times there may not be an exclusion, but a requirement to provide uh, for the trial a detailed list of any and all medications that are being taken. So it's an important discussion to have uh, with the medical team. Excellent, thank you. Um, so question for Dr. Benson. Um, I'm currently on a clinical trial. The treatment is working for me. Can I keep getting it even when the clinical trial ends? It's a general question, so if you could just address it in a general way. Because... Yes. So uh, uh, th there um, are a number of considerations. So um, if, it, if it's really a standard of care, and it's viewed as safe and effective, then uh, most people would continue the, the therapy. The trial may have a specific endpoint where, say, they're looking at disease control for a year, and th that's the endpoint of the trial, but that doesn't mean a person could not continue. There are some trials where there may be, especially with experimental drugs, uh, a, a limit as to the total duration of taking the drug. However, having said that, some trials will open up what's called an expansion phase where uh, it allows people to continue an experimental drug. Experimental drugs are, are much more restrictive, and, and there has to be guidance if, if there are people who would like to continue the drug for a long time. So it's really based on a trial-by-trial trial situation to make that determination. But often people may continue uh, their therapy. Uh, in the case of an experimental drug, it may be that you would have to sign a new consent form because the continuation of the drug would be outside the guidance of the trial you're on. Uh, but all of that should be discussed with the medical team, and uh, the study sponsor would weigh in. Excellent. Thank you. Ms. Um, Kuslak, did you want to add anything to that? No, I think that's great. Okay. Um, so um, another question. Um, so, Ms. Kusek, I am considering joining a clinical trial. Where can I find patients who have been on a clinical trial to talk to about the trial? So, if it is a trial that it so there's a variety of different places. I mean, sometimes um, support groups will have that information. And Carolyn, you can add it if you guys if you have um, specific things within your organization for that. But um, many times we will pair patients up if they come to our institution for studies. We may pair them up with somebody that has been on a study if they just want to hear about the study. Uh, itself and just how they did with the particular study. The big thing to remember with that is that every patient is different when they go on a clinical trial and what one person's response is is not going to be another person's. You know, we're trying to get to the level where we can do personalized medicine with every patient, meaning giving the right drug at the right dose to the right patient at the right time, you know, really personalizing it. But, um, and some of that is based on some of the genetic factors and different things like that that are going on with patients. But, um, you know, many times we will pair patients up with other patients that have that. And if you, again, go to um, uh, different support groups, many of those patients may have also participated in a, in a clinical trial. And you can talk to them about it. 
And uh, yes, that is a good point that in support groups, um, sometimes in both patient and caregiver support groups and mm-hmm. even survivor support groups, um, people will talk about they're participating in a clinical trial and share information. But again, I think as Ms. Kusak said, of course, it's not the same for each person, but the general overall experience or concept of what it's like to be in a trial, sometimes people find that very helpful to actually talk with somebody else who has, you know, done has participated in a trial, especially if they don't know a lot about what a trial entails. It, it can just talking to another person that they are familiar with in a group, even though the group facilitator will be very cautious to say that indeed, it, again, it's a different experience for each person, but still the general information sometimes people find helpful. And Dr. Benson, do you want to add to that? Uh, no, uh, I I think there are a variety of ways people can get information, and uh, we work with each individual. And yeah, you know, at my center, we do have various support groups and advocate group contacts, and um, try to accommodate each individual in terms of what would be helpful. Uh, some trials actually have videos where, and it may be from uh, individuals who have participated or had a treatment or the disease, and people can watch a, a video that can be helpful. Um, uh, so there are a variety of ways people can get more information. Excellent. Um, that's an excellent that that's yes, seeing a video could be very helpful to people as well. Just just to anything to to help with the learning about what this is all about. That's excellent. Um and another question, um, so for Doctor uh, Doctor Benson, will I be seeing my regular doctor if I am on a clinical trial? Who will be in charge of my care during the clinical trial? So if you could address that. So uh, it, it really depends on the situation. Um, uh, I think that uh, so if, for example, a person is referred to me uh, at Northwestern for a clinical trial uh, but has an oncologist, uh, we make every effort possible to work with the individual's uh, uh oncologist. Um, uh, For example, some of the testing may be able to be done locally, but many times if you have to go to another center and you're participating in a trial, everything will have to be done at that center, and then uh, communications should be sent uh, to the uh, primary oncologist, for example. Uh, so we make a, a big effort. For example, I have patients who go to NIH for various uh, programs, and I get from NIH a, a very detailed uh, analysis um, on the individual patient, and the person comes back to me for their uh, ongoing care. But uh, uh, even in the same institution, you might have to see another doctor who's performing that trial, but uh, uh, I think that uh, really for the most part every effort is to maintain those linkages with uh, an individual's uh, other uh, uh, clinicians. And that also includes primary care physicians. It's important that the primary care physician is well informed as to what's going on and uh, should be receiving progress notes, for example, uh, from the treating oncologist. Thank you. And Ms. Kusak, do you want to add anything? I totally agree with that, and I will tell you, anybody that does come here to NIH, we ask them to maintain their relationship with their primary care physician and with their oncologist, and we actually have two spaces for them to be able to give us information for that because we treat patients from all over the country, and so most of those patients want to go home between treatments, and so you want to be able to have access to someone while you're in your home area so that if something does come up, you can go to that person. So we do try to provide information for people and and make sure that that 
um, is available. And we want the we want to keep them in um, engaged, keep the local physicians engaged with any of the treatments that are done, so that everybody's abreast of um, what's going on with the with the patient. It also makes it easier for the for the patients or the participants when they um, finish their treatment to be able to go back. If you're maintaining those constant communications, it makes that transition much easier when somebody does um, finish in a clinical trial. And um, I think, Crystal, we have someone in a question from the telephone. We do have a question from Edmund E. Your line is open. Yes. Um, I was a subject in the first uh, vaccine study that the NCI did back in 2000. And, um, of course, I gave a sample of my tumor at the time, and a vaccine was made. Now, when I got the uh, injection, I, uh, I was, of course, it was a double-blind study, so I never knew whether I got the vaccine or, or the other uh, drug, uh, KLH, I believe, which was administered. Uh, can I be unblinded at some point and find that out? Now, that was over 20 years ago, and I'm still doing well, but I certainly would be curious to know. I would actually... Oh, go ahead. Yes. Sorry. Um, I was going to say, I you know, you can contact your investigator. Usually they don't do the unblinding um, for those studies. They, um, and I'm, I'm familiar with the KLH. I was here when they were doing that. Um, so they, you can contact the investigator and talk to, and talk to them just to see what the process is on board. But most of the time they don't do that um, unblinding for the for the double blind study. The only time they really unblind a study is if there is um, some kind of serious adverse effect that happened to somebody and they need to know whether they got the placebo or whether they got the vaccine or the drug, whatever drug they're doing. They may do it then, but they most of the time don't don't do that. Um, but I would call the investigator and talk to him about it and just um, because the study is completed and just ask him what they do with that data. That's interesting. That's an interesting question. Dr. Benson, do you want to add anything as well? No, I, I agree. Um, uh, there are times if a study is completely finished and uh, reported uh, that that might be possible. Um, but uh, certainly during the course of a study, there would not be uh, unblinding except, you know, as mentioned, if, if there was a significant medical reason where that had to be done. Um, but uh, uh, I agree, you, you just talk to the investigator and they can tell you uh, for that individual study what is possible. And they may even have to go back to the IRB um, right. You know, to, to get the IRB's opinion on that, to see what the IRB would say about that, the Institutional Review Board. When it's been 20 years, and and sometimes does it help if one's physician, in addition to your calling, that the physician may have referred you also calls? If there's some reason that they, I realize you're curious, I've been to know what, what that's a very honest curiosity to have, but also just want to know you are doing well, so just what the outcome was. Um, yeah, I'm sure they'd like to hear from you and see how you're doing. That's an excellent point. So all the more reason to contact them. Okay, well, this, um, and do we have another question in, in queue as well, um, Crystal? We have no further questions from our phone line. Okay. Excellent. Well, then, okay. I want to thank our speakers who've been really phenomenal. I want to thank all of you who've actually been, um, you know, uh, listening to the call today, and those of you who asked questions, and really good questions today. And um, uh, this has been really, I think we've done this program on other occasions, but this, I have to say, the, the questions, the whole, the speakers, the whole thing has been just a, a really remarkable call, and one that we actually garnered more, new information that we have not covered on other calls, so this is terrific as well. So I just want to thank you all. Um, I know that there are some of you still um, in queue online for questions, and so um, if you have any further questions, so if you have questions that you, um, either you asked a question but really there's a follow-up or you want to go back to your healthcare team or you think of a question after the call. So one thing we do want you to do is any questions you have or may have learned on the call today, please take them back to your, any answers you may have gotten, take it back to your treating healthcare team 
and run it past them. And also, if you have a question, do ask them. But I know many of you do like to go other places to get information. And so I think that um, we've given you a number of uh, resources. But I do want to just reiterate the National Cancer Institute is a wonderful resource for getting information about clinical trials. Um, they have an, um, there's a, a, an 800 number, 800-422-6237. Again, you'll be getting that with your evaluation. And there also is a, um, a website, www.cancer.gov. And they actually have a live chat feature on their um, website, which you can ask for help now, and you speak, and one of their information specialists will post your question, and they'll actually remark back and forth to you and provide you all sorts of resources. So it's an awfully nice resource to have um, at your fingertips to some extent. Um, and you'll be getting all the other resources that were mentioned today as well. And, of course, we do have many more. Actually, the month of June has many more of these programs. You will be getting a kind of link to our registration. You'll be able to see all the programs coming up and decide if any of those would be of interest to you. Some of you have signed up for the others, but if you haven't, um, they may be of interest. And lastly, I just want to mention that Cancer Care does have a meditation app, and many people find it very helpful in coping with their cancer. It's relaxation exercises on it. So think about that as well. Again, I want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.